0: Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today on the air on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. Those who've been listening throughout the course of the morning know that I flew home yesterday from Krakow after spending a week in Europe. The focus of my trip it was really a, a World War II, but in particular, a Holocaust immersion program of sorts. Myself and five close friends, we've made a habit uh, the last five years of spending the first week of the year visiting historical sites. A couple of years ago, we went to the U.K. We saw the... Uh, uh, the bunker, the location where Winston Churchill commanded the British effort during the Battle of the Blitz, by way of example, World War II is a particular subject of fascination for us. And I've been talking throughout the morning of my observations, in particular of my visit the last couple of days to Auschwitz and more specifically to Birkenau. I am so privileged to be able to. Uh, present to all of you now Sir Martin Gilbert who is one of the world's foremost historians he is Winston Churchill's official biographer he's a leading historian of the modern world he's the author if memory serves correct of 77 different books and for today's purposes he is you should know the author of the Holocaust the Jewish tragedy and uh, published in the United States as the Holocaust a history of the Jews of Europe during the Second World War and he wrote wrote a book that each member of my group read before we went overseas, Auschwitz and the Allies. Sir Martin Gilbert, what a privilege to have you in Philadelphia. Thank you, sir.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Uh, I have just visited the camps. I've described my experience. I've also talked about the lack of an Allied effort at a time when a great deal was known about what was going on inside of Auschwitz, inside of Birkenau. And I almost have to be apologetic in asking you a question that you've spent a whole book on, but why didn't the Allies do more?
1: Well, curiously, the Allies did do an enormous amount. <laughs> Principally, they took on at tremendous cost themselves, uh, trying to destroy this massive overpowering Nazi tyranny, which was murdering uh, many other people besides the Jews. Though, tragically, the Jews were their largest victims. Ironically, when they were asked to bomb the railway lines, leading to the camp. Winston Churchill, the British leader, said do it very emphatically. Uh, But in those days during the war, bombing by night was done by the British and bombing by day by the Americans. And when it was put to the Americans, uh, a relatively junior official in Washington, the under-secretary of State for War, turned it down and it got no further. And that was a tragedy
0: are you referring to john McCoy? yes indeed and, and I, I, spent I bring that time up
1: talking with him about this many years ago and he assured me that he did it not because he was anti-jewish but because he was worried that if they diverted, as he put it, bombing resources, though this wouldn't have been really a diversion, but he said if they diverted bombing resources on behalf of the Jews, then the Greeks would ask for diversions, and the Poles would ask for diversions, and the Serbs would ask for diversions. And he went rather pathetically through this list of if you like, rather annoying peoples who are under Nazi rule, who are sort of each of them seeking some special activity.
0: He's a uh, a Philadelphian, uh, Sir Martin Gilbert, and that's why I wanted to pay particular attention to John McCoy.
1: He was a Philadelphian, you're right, and he was uh, also, of course, the man who, after the war, uh, uh, became the, the, the chief Allied administrator in, in Western Germany, in occupied Western Germany, and it was he who ended the denazification process, whereby the Allies were actually very thoroughly and patiently trying to track down the killers, including those who had committed the crimes at Auschwitz-Birkenau, uh, which was an Allied commitment. And uh, it was McCloy who, who wound that commitment up. Very distressing.
0: Those Allied bombers that, uh, that tried to support the Warsaw Uprising, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but would have flown in the skies over Auschwitz-Birkenau.
1: They did. In fact, in my book, Auschwitz and the Allies, which you mentioned, I do a map showing that the exact flight path uh, from southern Italy, uh, from the Allied bases in in liberated southern Italy to Warsaw, flew over the railway lines. But unfortunately, very few of those flights took place. They were high-level flights. Uh, They were volunteer flights to try to drop supplies to the poles. And... uh, It's very doubtful if they could have been effective. But of course, it's one of these tragic stories, what might have been, which we'll never know the answer. What would have happened if somehow Churchill's instruction had been obeyed because the British were flying by day? Uh, I met and spent time with uh, the British Air Force officer who would have been in charge of actually doing the bombing. He was in charge of special projects, a very remarkable man called Group Captain Leonard Cheshire who was later one of the eyewitnesses from the air of the dropping of the first atomic bomb. And he was indignant uh, that somehow or other it hadn't been put to him uh, that it had to go through the Americans. When
0: John McCloy told you that to to divert resources to bomb the camps to which we refer, uh, when he responded by saying, well, there then would have been a laundry list of similar requests, that suggests that the level of depravity in Birkenau was not known. But your book says otherwise. Your book suggests that they had all sorts of anecdotal information and indeed some escapees who told the Allies exactly what was going on.
1: Yes, and the bombing requests. Came as a result of this incredible bravery of five men who escaped from Auschwitz. Uh, four of them Jewish: Verber uh, and Wetzler, and Mordovich and Rosin. Four remarkable Jews. One of them, a Polish Christian, Yegi Tabo, a young medical student, and they brought the news to the West. And it was this explosion of detailed information uh, that led to the the um, the request for bombing and Churchill saying, "Do it." One of the things which which I was fascinated and depressed by in talking to McCloy, was that he clearly hadn't bothered to read this. Again, you know, he he had his reason, and his reason was, look, an enormous amount of stuff was coming across my desk. I couldn't be expected to read every piece of paper. Well, we now know that in war, and indeed in peace, when, you know, if you're in charge of something, you have to read. You you are responsible for doing it. But another thing I discovered in my research was that There was quite a difference between Churchill and Roosevelt. How so? And that was that Churchill spent pretty well 80% of his waking day dealing with the war. And Roosevelt spent about a third of that time. In terms of actual time, Roosevelt spent about four hours and Churchill about 12 hours. Well, that's an enormous difference when it comes to actually getting through the paperwork, reading what's going on taking in what these escapees from Auschwitz are trying to tell you.
0: Sir Martin Gilbert is my guest. He's Winston Churchill's official biographer and a leading historian of the modern world. Michael Smirkanish. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4.
1: Get more critical thinking at
0: smirconish.com. Sir Martin Gilbert is my guest. He's Winston Churchill's official biographer and a leading historian of the modern world. Sir Martin, there were, there were six individuals in my group that just came back from an overseas trip to Auschwitz. And each of us had read Auschwitz and the Allies, which, which is your really benchmark analysis of what went on. And you'll pardon this, but one member of the group said that he found your book very informative and very dry. And we then had a dinner debate about the style in which you wrote the book. And it was decided by my group, which by the end of dinner was half in the bag, but decided nonetheless that you had written your book in a very deliberate non-hyperbole fashion so that you would in essence have been creating a record that could never be disputed about the level of information that was given to the allies so my question is was that your thought process in assembling all this information
1: absolutely i've always uh, (laughs) when i write my books Before I send them to the publisher, I go through and, if you like, I cross out every adjective and every adverb. Uh, I think that uh, the facts are so strong and so striking. And, of course, one of the things I do in the book, and and I think this perhaps goes against the dryness, is that I, I quote the people themselves. So. I interviewed Verba, the escapee, and tell his story in his own words. And his words, of course, are not dry at all. They're very emotional, and rightly so. So you have the mix of the historian saying, look, here are the facts. I've dug them up. They're not always easy to find, but here they are. I've tried to set them out clearly, hopefully. And here is the emotion from the participants. But in a way, I always feel... It's for every reader to say, to, to be indignant at something, for every reader to say, that's a terrible story, or that's a great shame, or there's something the Allies did wrong. and. And, and I'm sure that the, the materials I give, which aren't just sort of dates and figures, but also the the voices of the participants, as you know in Auschwitz and the Allies, the voices of these terrible British officials who sort of say things like, you know, well, the Jews are always trying to stoke us up, and the Jews always exaggerate, and why should we help these wailing Jews? Those, those aren't dry pages.
0: No, indeed they're not. One other current subject that I'm, I'm quite anxious to hear Sir Martin Gilbert's thoughts on it's the subject of the Holocaust deniers of today and more specifically whether there should be laws as exist in 20 plus nations in Europe that make it against the law to question the existence of the Holocaust. I had, you'll be interested to know, maybe a very spirited conversation with our tour guide at Birkenau. And and we were debating what's the best way to pass on the lessons of the atrocities that were committed in that camp. And we disagreed. I think it's by having an open exchange that's very fact intensive. And she said there are just certain things that are not subject to debate. What does Sir Martin Gilbert think on that issue?
1: Sir Martin Gilbert thinks this is a very difficult question. Uh, I attended almost every day of the Irving Lipstadt trial, and I heard from the mouth of a Holocaust denier the most terrifying racism, anti-Semitism, and I thought to myself, if this person is allowed to uh, spread his word to ignorant audiences, or audiences who want to be prejudiced, that's a bad thing. So when the Austrian government, of all governments, because Austria had been so complicit in the Nazi uh, destruction, when the Austrian government uh, imprisoned him for his denial, I thought, well, you know, he knew the law, he broke the law, and the Austrians have a right to feel that this is something inflammatory and wrong. Uh, I've been much criticized by fellow historians who say, how can you put a historian in jail? But I think every country has a right to to its own laws. And I think uh, I'm impressed if you say that your tour guide at Auschwitz said that, because Although one might disagree, as you say, free speech is is tremendously important in our society, and debate and argument, and I'm all for that. I'm all for every Holocaust denier being able to speak in a forum where there's someone who is going to challenge him or her. But at the same time, countries like Poland know that uh, Holocaust denial, anti-Semitism, racism take on a life of their own if they're not challenged. But my
0: concern, Sir Martin, is that you're giving credibility and credence to the the minuscule number of deniers when you don't even permit there to be that kind of dialogue, because I I think there'll be a level of skepticism in future generations who wonder, why can we debate everything else but not debate that?
1: You're absolutely right, and I think the key word is dialogue. And, And I said a moment earlier, I am totally in favor of every Holocaust denier being able to speak. Uh, provided he or she allows there to be a dialogue. Uh, I mean, I'm willing to travel the world or, or to get up at the crack of dawn in order to be present at such a debate. And, and, and many other historians, many other uh, Jews and non-Jews who, who feel the Holocaust uh, must not be denied or must be challenged, then, you know, they will do the same. So I think that that's, that's fine. The other thing I feel, and I, I, I think I'm right, is that... Holocaust denial is really quite a minor thing. I mean it has its 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 fling on the internet, it has its 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 few adherents who travel everywhere, as they did to Ahmadinejad's uh, anti-Holocaust conference. They made a pathetic uh, showing, actually, there. I think that what is important is the amount of material about the Holocaust. Uh, uh, Much of it, as you will have seen in the Auschwitz bookshop, published by Auschwitz itself, uh, records, diaries... Uh, The enormous number of superb memoirs uh, from Elie Wiesel's Night On, these things are available. They're taught in schools. American uh, states in the main have an incredibly good record mandating uh, Holocaust teaching. I don't know what the situation is in Pennsylvania, but even in England now, we have an annual Holocaust day, and it's mandatory for every school to teach something about the Holocaust during the year.
0: One other observation, Sir Martin Gilbert. We began our trip in Berlin and we made a we made a visit to Von See because yeah. we wanted to appreciate the Von See conference and the protocol and so forth. We were staying in the hotel Adlon right next to the Brandenburg Gate. So, and you know this geography, uh, I, I, I take it. And at the yep. uh, one afternoon, we walked out to to pay our respects at this monument created for Jews of the world who perished in World War II, and and almost uh, uh, by accident, we found out that the Fuhrer bunker was fifty yards away. And the Fuhrer Bunker was preserved with a very tiny placard that didn't go up until the World Cup last year. And I think that's a mistake. I think that the Fuhrer Bunker should be unearthed and fully explored so that again, there's there's living proof forever for people to see.
1: It's extraordinary you say that because when I traveled around Europe Uh, with my students about 10 years ago. And I wrote a book about that called Holocaust Journey, Travelling in Search of the Past. And uh, I have maps of each town, like Berlin, Krakow, Warsaw, and so on, which we went to and what to see. I was myself astonished, and I mention in the book, that there wasn't a plaque there. I'm glad to hear there's a plaque, albeit a small one. And I agree totally with you. There should be complete openness. There should be complete transparency. And... uh, you know, the more the, bu- the bunker should be opened, it should be available for people to see, particularly as Germany is now making films about the Führer. The most recent one is a, apparently a humorous film. So let the bunker be opened, let it become a place of pilgrimage, if you like, or a place of, of essentially of learning, as so many Holocaust uh, sites are today. It's
0: a great privilege for me to have you in Philadelphia, if only for a few minutes. I wish we could get you physically into town.
1: I'd like to do that very much indeed. Very good to speak to you.
0: I hope to make your acquaintance uh, sometime. Sir Martin Gilbert. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on SiriusXM's POTUS Channel 124. Live
1: weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SiriusXM app.
0: Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays.